Well, last week I spent a week at Yaguna. Yaguna is around Bankstown in southwest Sydney. And I was there as part of the Moore College Mission Week, where teams of college students like myself are sent to churches all over the place, some in Sydney, some interstate, some overseas. And what we do for a whole week is that we work alongside the church to tell, uh, to tell the community about Jesus. Well, I was sent to a church in Yaguna last week, and during the week, I had many conversations with people about their religious beliefs. And one question that I often asked people was, how do you think you get into heaven? Now, no matter what their religious belief or upbringing was, nearly every single person said to me, in one form or another, you need to do the right things. Be a good person and do the right things. And I'd ask, well, do you think you've done enough? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Have you done enough to go to heaven? And they'd say to me, I really hope so. I don't know, but I really do hope so. Now, I think these conversations represent what many people in our world believe. We often picture a ladder to heaven, and getting your your way there is about working your way up that ladder. The five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism, the seven sacraments of Catholicism, or keeping the Ten Commandments. The rungs of the ladder might look different, but the idea is the same. You need to work uh, work your way up the ladder. It's about what you do, and you can never be sure if you've done enough. Now, I used to think this way as well. Um, You know, I used to think it was all about my efforts and what I did. Not that I tried very hard, to be honest with you, but that's what I thought at least. But the passage we read today in Hebrews tells us very clearly that it's not about what we do, but about what God has already done in Christ. God has come down that ladder to carry us up. And so my hope is that you'll walk out of this building today knowing that you can be sure of your standing before God. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has already done. And so let's get stuck right into it. There are three points on your outline and we're at point one. The necessity of Christ's blood. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The new covenant was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament, where God promised a day would come, where he would transform the hearts of his people and forgive all their sins. When verse 15 that we just read, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that that future day is now here because the death of Christ has achieved it. And the writer wants us to understand that Christ's blood was absolutely necessary for inaugurating this new covenant. He does this by referring to the precedent that was set by the first covenant. So look at verse 18 below. He says this, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, 
and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. These verses summarize the events of Exodus 24, when the first covenant between God and Israel was inaugurated at Mount Sinai. You see, after Moses read the law to the people, they promised to obey everything that God had done. So Moses, he took the sacrificial blood and he sprinkled half of it on uh, the altar, which represented God, the one who is making the covenant. And he took the other half of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people, the ones who are being brought into the covenant. And so what the writer is saying here is that just as the old covenant was inaugurated by the sprinkling of blood, by the sacrificial blood, so the new covenant needed to be inaugurated by the blood of Christ's death. But it raises an obvious question. Why? Why was it absolutely necessary? Well, verse 22 gives us the key principle. It was necessary because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin leads to death. When we disobey God or ignore him, when we cut God out of our lives, well, what does God do? He gives us what we deserve. He cuts us off from himself and we fall under his judgment of death. That is what we deserve. If death is the punishment for sin, then forgiveness requires the payment of death. Forgiveness can only happen if a substitute takes our place and bears our penalty. Forgiveness requires the shedding of And so do you see how serious sin is? We're very good at downplaying our sin, at sweeping it a carpet, aren't we? We blame others for our sin. He made me act that way. Or we blame the circumstances. I had no choice. I had to do that. Or we compare ourselves to other people. You know, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like him. Or her. Or we normalize our sin. You know, everyone else does it. But God doesn't downplay our sin. God tells us that sin leads to death. He tells us that sin is serious and that forgiveness is very costly. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, thus, we read in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We're at point two now, and that's the sufficiency of Christ's blood. Now what are the heavenly things that need to be purified with better sacrifices? It's not referring to heaven itself as if heaven was defiled by sin and needed cleansing. Rather, the context of chapter 9 tells us that it's referring to our consciences. If you just look up at verse 14, the verse before our passage, you can see that our consciences are what need to be purified. And Christ's death is the better sacrifice that brings about this purification. As the writer makes clear in the following verses, look at verse 24 now. Verse 24 of chapter 9. 
For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. These verses are talking about the Day of Atonement to show how Christ's sacrifice was better in every single way. You see, on this day, every single year, the Levitical priests offered animal sacrifices, bulls, goats, to atone for the people, the people's sins. But Christ's sacrifice was better because he offered not the blood of animals, but the blood of himself. He offered himself to bear the sins of many. This is something animal sacrifices could not do. As the writer says in chapter 10, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, I've had asthma since I was a very young child. I still use a puffer to relieve my symptoms and to prevent flare-ups. My puffer keeps my asthma under control, and I'm very thankful for it. But it's only a treatment, not a cure. And every time I use my puffer, it reminds me that I still have asthma, that I still have a problem that needs a cure. The old covenant sacrifices were sort of like this. They were a treatment. They provided ritual purification and outward sort of cleansing, but they weren't a cure. They couldn't deal with the root problem of sin that is in every single human being. They couldn't purify the conscience of the worshipper. Because no animal is an adequate substitute for a human being. Only a human being can take the place of another human being. And only a sinless, perfect human being can bear the penalty for a sinful human being. The Bible tells us that Christ was such a substitute because he came as a human being. In his incarnation, he took on human flesh. And in his life, he was tempted in every single way, like us. Yet he remained without sin. He obeyed God perfectly. And this is the writer's argument in chapter 10, verse 5 to 10. In verse 5, Christ came into the world. And then in verse 9, he was perfectly obedient to God's will. And so the blood of animals can't take away our sins, but the blood of Christ can. Now there's a common objection, and that's this. If God is so loving, why couldn't he just forgive us? Why does he demand the bloody death of Christ? And the answer that the Bible gives us is that it's because of who God is. Yes, 
God is love. That is absolutely true. He desires to forgive sinners. But at the same time that that is true, it is also true that God is holy. And he hates sin. He cannot tolerate it. He can't leave it unpunished. And so he must judge sinners. So, how can God forgive sinners without compromising his holiness? And how can God judge sinners without frustrating his love? How can he hold both aspects of his character together? When God's wisdom, the solution was the cross, the death of Christ. Because at the cross, God in Christ paid the full penalty for our sins himself. In Christ, God bore the judgment we deserve to give us the forgiveness we don't deserve. And so you see, Christ's death was the only way God could satisfy both his love and his holiness. It was the only way God <coughs> excuse me, could forgive our sins. And so Christ offered himself. And because his sacrifice, his blood can take away sins, Christ only had to die once. His sacrifice doesn't need to be repeated over and over again. Under the old covenant, the priests needed to offer the same animal sacrifices year after year, chapter 10, verse 1, day after day, verse 11. But Christ offered himself once for all. And notice too in verse 11 that the priests, what posture did they take? They remained standing as they had to keep offering the sacrifices. But, verse 12, Christ has taken his seat at the right hand of God. That shows us that his work's finished. The job is done. There's no more to be offered again. Today, after this sermon, as we do every now and then, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we eat bread and drink wine, and we do this to proclaim Christ's finished work on the cross. Now, if you've had a Catholic upbringing, you might have been taught that the Lord's Supper, or Mass, the bread, you might have been taught that the bread, while it still looks like bread, is actually changed into Christ's body. And the wine, while it still looks like wine, is changed into the blood of Christ. And in doing this, Christ is physically present in the bread and in the wine. And his atoning sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago is also present in that moment. Such that the sacrament itself, the Mass, actually atones for your sin. In other words, every time the Mass is done, Christ is being re-sacrificed. Friends, this is a distortion of what the Bible teaches. And it matters. It's a dangerous distortion because what does it do? What does it make you believe? It makes you believe that Christ's death wasn't enough to accomplish your salvation, that his work wasn't done, and that you actually need to keep doing this sacrament to receive God's grace and be saved. That is a dangerous distortion of the Bible because then you're left thinking that it's up to you and what you do. But this passage is clear that Christ offered himself as a single sacrifice for our sins. 
never to be repeated again. And so friends, as we do the Lord's Supper later, as we celebrate it, let's not think that is about what we bring to the table. Let's celebrate what Christ has already done because his death was sufficient. Let's finish by looking at the results as blood. We're at point three. The sanctification, verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now to be sanctified is to be made holy. They're part of the same word group, Greek. But in English, the problem is uh, holify just doesn't work as a verb. And so we say sanctify. We use the word sanctify to mean make holy. At its broadest level, it means being set apart for a special purpose. And when it's used in reference to the believer, the one who trusts in Jesus, it means to be set apart for service to God through the inward cleansing of our sins. Sometimes the Bible speaks of sanctification as an ongoing process in the believer. By the Spirit, the believer puts off sin and puts on godliness. But here in verse 10, as in many other parts of the Bible, It's speaking of sanctification as a finished state. Did you notice what tense the verb was? Look at it again. Through Christ's death, the believer has been sanctified. He or she has been set apart for God through the inward cleansing of sins. Last year, I became a dad when our daughters were born. But over the past six months, I've noticed that I've become more dad-like. I've stopped asking why things are wet. I think wearing a baby carrier is really cool. I sway side to side for no apparent reason sometimes. And I take great interest in the color and texture of my baby's poo. I'm becoming more dad-like as I do dad things. But I'm already a dad. And I'm as much a dad today as I was six months ago when I first became a dad. This is what sanctification is like. It's an ongoing process, but it's also a finished state. And verse 10 is emphasizing the finished state. This is who believers already are. In other words, there are not two levels of Christians, those who are holy and those who are not, those who are saints and those who are not. And the Christian life is not about trying to attain the higher status. No, it's about becoming who you already are. Because through Christ's death, every believer has been sanctified. Christ has done it all. He's done everything that's required to make us holy in God's sight. Another result is perfection and is closely related. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In the context of Hebrews, as we've already seen before, the perfecting of believers isn't referring to moral perfection. You know this because you know you're still a sinner. Rather, it's to do with being made fit to be in God's service, to be made fit, qualified to be in God's presence. You can see this in chapter 10, verse 1. You can see that the animal sacrifices couldn't make perfect those who drew near. You see, the people drew near to the tabernacle to offer their sacrifices, but those sacrifices couldn't qualify them for God's presence. They couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could enter it. But Christ's death 
has made the believer fit, qualified to enter God's presence. You can see this in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Last year, my wife Shiva signed up to a broadsheet competition. She won two tickets to an exclusive pre-screening of The Incredibles 2. Every seat in the cinema for this pre-screening was paid for by broadsheet. And so when you arrived, you got your name ticked off to the list, and then each person received a pair of Edna glasses and an Edna wig. I have the photo of this, actually. In the language of Hebrews, you could say that we were perfected to enter the pre-screening. We were made fit to enter. And again, did you notice what tense the verb was in? Look at verse 14. Christ's death has perfected the believer. It's a completed action. It's a done deal. Christ has done it all. He's done everything that's required to make us fit. Finally, there's the assurance of forgiveness. Look at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is the new covenant promise we've been talking about from Jeremiah 31. God writes his law in the, uh, in the minds and the hearts of his people. In other words, he gives them everything that they need to be able to obey him. But the basis of the promise is the assurance that God would forgive their sins. For after saying this, verse 15, then he adds, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Note the finality of what is described here. There is a complete forgiveness of sins because that's how sufficient Christ's sacrifice was. This is the good news of the gospel, that God has done it all in the death of Christ. He's paid for your sins in the past, in the present, and in the future. And all you need to do is turn and put your trust in him. So have you done this? Because chapter 9, verse 27, God's judgment is coming. And you're standing under the just sentence of death. But turn and put your trust in Christ and God will forgive you and remember your sins no more. Now a word to us here who are believers in Jesus. Our assurance is not an excuse to sin because God has placed his law in our hearts and our minds. In other words, he hasn't just saved us from sin, he saved us to live in obedience to him, a new life. And so as we live the Christian life, we must continue to confess and repent of our sin. We're going to do this as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to confess our sins to him. But I want you to remember, we don't do it out of fear or uncertainty. Fear that we don't measure up. Uncertainty that we haven't done enough. Because Christ has done it all. He's paid for our sins, past, present, and future. And so, 
we approach the throne of God with confidence and boldness as we confess our sins, knowing that we are completely forgiven in Christ and with full assurance that we will be saved on the day of judgment. Because look at verse 27 again. Just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Last year I met Jay. Jay grew up thinking that to be right with God, to get to heaven, you do good things, you do the right things. I asked Jay the same question that I asked the people in Yaguna. If you die tonight, Jay, would you go to heaven? Have you done enough good? Jay was lost for words. He didn't know what to say to me. I shared the gospel with Jay, and I encouraged him to go to church in Tungabi to find out more. Not long after that, Jay put his trust in Jesus. And now if you ask Jay the same question, this is what he'd say, and these are his words, not mine. If tomorrow I die, I know Jesus will be there with me because I have received him in my life as my God and Saviour. Jay now lives with full assurance of his salvation. Not because of anything he's done or anything that he is doing, but because of what Christ has already done. And the assurance that Jay had and has is the same assurance that all believers can have too. So let's thank God for that, shall we? Let's pray to him. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross. Thank you that he offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, so that through him you forgive us completely, and you remember our sins no more. So, Father, help us not to look to ourselves and what we do, but to look to Jesus and what he's already done so that we might look forward to his return with great certainty that we are safe in him. In his name we pray. Amen.